good morning. Good to see you this morning. We have a lot of families traveling, the end of spring break, uh, but it is good to see you here. It is definitely spring. It's going to be in the 70s on Tuesday, I'm told. Yeah, hallelujah. The baseball season kicked off this past Thursday. Um, the Cubs won their opener against the Brewers. We have some Yankee fans here too. They also had their season opener on Thursday. I'm sorry to report that they also won. But no, we like Yankees. We like Yankee fans. Uh, both of them lost yesterday though, so now they're one and one. Well, I have a brother, Mark, who is a huge Cubs fan. Even though he was born in San Diego and he lives in Eagle, Idaho, He's a big Cubs fan, and every year he and his family make at least one pilgrimage to Wrigleyville to attend the games. And I met up with Mark and his family last September, and we went to one of the games together and had a really good time. Now, when I got there, he said he had a surprise for me, and he had bought us tickets to this thing called the 1914 Club. I don't know if you heard of it. I didn't even know it existed but in 2016, they began excavating some of the original foundation of Wrigley Field behind home plate so they could dig down and build this club underground under the grandstands. And now that it's complete, it's, it's amazing. Uh, a ticket to the club gets you entrance with unlimited food and drinks. They have like five-star bathrooms. I mean, I mean, ours here are really good now, but <laughs> those are two. They have, uh, you know, like high-end merchandise store where you can only get things there. The only place you can get it, you get special seating at the game and a bunch of other perks. And so, I don't know if they have anything like this at Yankee Stadium, but it's pretty swank. <laughs> the food buffet alone was amazing. I mean, it's just a little piece, all I could get in a picture. It was huge. You could have everything from prime rib to a 26-ounce steak smothered in gravy. They have this ridiculously deluxe sausage station where you can put together some amazing Chicago hot dogs. And then there's that dessert section and ice cream. And the cool thing is you can, it opens two hours before the game and it stays open for another hour after the game. So it's like an all day affair. You eat like three meals while you're there. You can eat in the club, you can take it to your seat with you. And again, it's all included. But a ticket will set you back between $400 and $700 <laughs> per game, per game. Now, my brother doesn't do anything halfway, but he told me you can get a hold of tickets like last minute from people who can't attend and get them at a huge discount. And so that's what he did, and, and we had a great time. And I'm excited, too. My brother's coming back here in three weeks, and, and they hope to be with us at Riverside. And love for you to meet him and his family. Now, the reason I introduce that is because this incredible buffet and the 1914 club, they don't let children in there. But imagine for a moment if you sent a child in with a plate and said, go get whatever you want to eat. What do you suppose they come back with? Yeah, maybe a burger. I doubt it would be a gourmet salad. It might not even have any meat. Maybe a slice of deep dish pizza, probably a whole bunch of desserts, right? That's my guess. And I can relate. 
some of us adults would probably do the same thing. You should have seen us at the Seder dinner when it was dessert time. I saw you guys. Me too. We loaded up. But they would probably choose mostly desserts. Well, you know, in a similar way, the Word of God is like a buffet. Scripture is often described as food, meat, milk, bread, and different parts of the Word of God. Some of them I love reading. The text is easy. It's like eating ice cream. I could do it all day long. And other parts are really hard. Some are meaty, but other parts are just hard to chew on. Like those rock hard rolls that they have in some restaurants. About all you can do is just gnaw on it. I don't think you can actually digest it. You just have to gnaw on that thing. And so there's passages of scripture that are like that. And our passage this morning is one of those very difficult passages. And yet, all scripture is God-breathed and suitable for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So even the difficult passages are nourishing to our souls. And again, we might not be able to digest it, but God still wants us to chew on it. And so with this in mind, we're in chapter 5 of 1 John. And if I, it's our practice to teach through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter. If it weren't for that, I'd probably skip over this and say, eh, we'll, just, we'll go on to something else more tasty. But we're in this text, and the title this morning is Absolute Certainty of Sin and Our Responsibility to Pray. And once again, it's just two verses. We're really slowing down here because there's just a lot in this to break down. But we're going to look at three parts. The subject of sin in the first half of verse 16. The priority of prayer in the second half of 16. And then the question of interpretation in, the, in both 16 and 17. And you're going to find that these two verses are a bit puzzling. And they're the subject of a lot of uncertainty. Even Bible scholars who normally land in the same camp on other things are all over the board on this passage. I don't think there's anybody who can say, I know with absolute certainty what this means, what some of this interpretation is. I can't say it, but I am going to do my best to explain the possibilities and make clear application to the parts of the text that are very clear, and there's a lot in here that is clear. So let's read through these two verses together first, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Starting in verse 16, if anyone sees a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, First off, this passage is related to verses 13 and 14 that we dug into. I'm sorry, 14 and 15 that we dug into last week. And the subject there was prayer. And we saw in verse 14 that we as believers have this amazing privilege of approaching Almighty God. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. You couldn't just go up to God. You couldn't just pray to Him. You had to go through a priest and the reason is there was sin separating a holy God from sinful people. But Jesus made a way. He purchased our access to the Father with his blood. And we saw that the curtain is torn. 
and we can now enter into the presence of God. And in this life, that looks like prayer. We can go before the Lord in prayer. In eternity, we'll be able to stand before him physically because the Lord dealt with the sin which used to separate us. So we also saw last time that one of the purposes of prayer is to bring our will in alignment with God's will, not the other way around. And so when we strive to understand what is God's will, and he tells us a lot about what it is, and when we pray according to his will, he assures us that he hears us and he listens and that we have what it is that we've asked for. So with that in verses 14 and 15, what we have now is a very specific example of praying according to the will of God. And with all the uncertainty surrounding this passage, we don't want to miss the fact that the main point of this text is in fact prayer. And so I want to jump into it. I want to begin, first of all, with the subject of sin. In verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Now, the word sin, as you probably know, literally means to miss the mark. And the imagery is that of a hunter with a bow and arrow or a spear. And he misses the target. That would be sin. Failing to hit the target. Now, sin, in a spiritual sense, is anything that misses God's target. And God's target is really, really small. In fact, his target is this. It's moral perfection. Anything short of moral perfection is sin. And so, of course, this would include the big sins like murder, robbery, adultery, rape. But it also includes the more subtle sins. Like impatience, irritability, unthankfulness, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, worldliness, and on and on. But sin goes even further than that. James 4.17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Wow. Sin is both action and inaction. There's sins of commission and there's sins of omission. It's a very narrow, small target. And anything that misses that target of perfect righteousness is sin. So back in, our, in chapter one of our series, I mentioned how people don't like to use the word sin anymore. It's no longer in vogue. We hardly hear it outside of the church. And our society in large part, has resorted to giving medical labels to things which scripture would say are sin. So rather than being a drunkard, a person that has the disease of alcoholism, or a child, he's not disobedient, he has oppositional defiance disorder. Or a man's not angry, he's just reliving the patterns of his childhood. And now, get this, even pedophiles are being called minor attracted persons. It's, it's really unbelievable. unbelievable. Even the massacre, the horrible massacre in Tennessee this past week is being described as a mental or emotional illness. Now, I'm not saying there's never any medical factors involved in some of these things, but let's call sin what it is. It's sin. It's an offense against the holy God. 
And as long as we reclassify everything as a medical condition, then our society no longer needs moral instruction. They just need medication. They no longer need to repent. They need to recover. And the solutions, they're not found in repentance in a relationship with the Lord. They're found in rehab. And so see what's happening? It's no longer a sin against God. It's just a medical condition that really is not your fault. So wow, is it any wonder our country is heading in the direction that it is? We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1.24 says. So the only hope for America, the only hope, it's not a better government. It's the gospel. And I'm not saying the government doesn't play a role, but in a democracy, the government merely reflects the hearts of the majority of the people. It can't change their hearts. It reflects their hearts. And of course, I'd love to see a Christian president and an all-Christian Congress. But we have to understand that while that'll make us Christians feel better, it's not going to change the hearts of unbelievers. If anything, it's going to just stir them up. It's going to create greater resentment. So the change that our country so desperately needs can only come from the gospel, not the government. It comes from a realization that our problems are spiritual and they're rooted in sin. And what's needed is repentance and a restoration to our Lord. Now with that in mind, notice that in verse 16, the sin that's spoken of, it's not those people out there. It's these people in here. It's us. It's us. It says, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death. Brother refers to a fellow believer, a member of the church body, whether that be a man or a woman. And so it's, it's really easy to focus on the world and all of their issues and say, you are the cause of all of our problems. But, Think about this for a minute. This is the thought I had this week. You know what? The world is not a bad reflection on God. It's not. If anything, the world is a good example of what happens when you live a life apart from God. The church, when it sins, is a bad reflection on God. Big difference. We are his image bearers. We're his people. We're the ones called by his name, Christian. And so we're the ones that are supposed to show the world what life looks like with God. And that's why I say Hollywood doesn't make God look bad. It's, it's the church when we fall into sin, we make God look bad. And that's the reason why change has to start with us. It has to. Second Chronicles 7.14, you know it well. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It has to begin with us. And so, yes, God wants to see repentance in the world, but he wants to see purity in the church because the church is the witness to a lost world. So this is speaking about sin amongst brothers, first of all. We don't want to miss that point. Another thing to note about the start of verse 16, it says, if anyone sees a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death. doesn't say if anybody hears about it. Not talking about hearsay or gossip, but a firsthand 
knowledge of sin. Now here's the thing. If we're fellowshipping with one another the way we're supposed to, we're going to see sin in each other's lives. We're going to. Christians commit sin. It's unavoidable. One of the most remarkable and magnificent monuments in our country, I think, is Mount Rushmore. Those majestic figures of the presidents carved out of the South Dakota granite, they're awesome to see, especially lit up at night. Now, originally, the, the, the statue, the carving of Roosevelt was supposed to be on the right side of George Washington, but as they got into it, they found that the rock was not suitable for that. So they dynamited that statue and they moved Roosevelt around to the left-hand side. And as perfect as those images look from a distance, when you get up close, you start to see that they have a lot of flaws in them. There's cracks running all through them. In fact, the Forest Service has a, or the, the Park Service has a nonstop job of filling those cracks with silicon and granite powder so that the water doesn't get in there and freeze and expand and move the rock and break up the statues. In fact, they have motion sensors all over them to measure the movement of the rock as the temperature changes so they can try to head off a problem before it really becomes noticeable. Well, in 2005, a German contractor was hired to power wash Decades of dirt and lichen off of the monument. And for the first time in many, many years, they were bright and white and shiny again, and they looked great. But if you were able to zoom in close enough, you'd find that over the top of Washington's left eyelid is a broken off drill bit from the 1930s. It's about the size of a person's arm. Now, I verified this through National Geographic. I, I found it. I couldn't believe it. But it's there. Here's a, here it is zoomed in a little further. And there it is, a drill bit. Can you see it there? A big old drill bit sticking out of George Washington's eye. Who would have thought? Now, it was hardly visible when the statues were dirty. Once they were all cleaned up, it sticks out. If you get close enough, you see this flaw in the statue. Well, the same can be said of our brothers and sisters in Christ, can it? When we get close enough to each other relationally, the way we're supposed to, we're going to see flaws. We're going to see sin. We're going to see our brothers and sisters missing the mark. Have you noticed that? Is it just me? Have you seen it in each other a little bit? I suspect so. In fact, we can be absolutely certain <laughs> that everybody seems normal until you get to know them. Isn't that the truth? You know? And then you, when you get to know them in a, in a Christian relationship, then you start to see the sin. It doesn't matter how spiritually mature a person is. You're going to see sin in their life. So what do we do when we see a brother or sister sin? How should we respond? We're not going to go tell someone about it, that too would be gossip. It doesn't even say that we should call the person out on it. What our text says in verse 16 is that we should pray. Let's look at that next, the priority of prayer. Now, when the only response to sin that this passage gives is prayer, does that surprise you just a little bit? Be honest, does that surprise you? 
does it feel like maybe it's a, almost a little dismissive? Like, we can't just pray. Surely we need to do something about it. We can't just sit back and pray. Well, we do need to do something about it. And the first thing we need to do about it, and probably the most important thing, and sometimes the only thing we need to do about it, is to pray. This, this verses 16 and 17 are held up as an example of praying according to the will of God, following on the heels of verses 14 and 15. So we're to pray for a brother and sister when we see them sinning. Now, why should that be the first thing? I mean, I, I gave a lot of thought to that this week. And I want to share with you seven reasons that I came up with. There's probably more, but seven reasons why prayer should be the very first thing we do, our first response. And the first reason is because it puts us in touch with the heart of God. This might be a little small to see, but it puts us in touch with the heart of God. And when we're in touch with the heart of God, it'll have a profound impact on us. On us, the one praying. And that's such an important starting point because when we get in touch with the heart of God, we will see just how much God loves this other person. We'll realize that he loved them so much that he gave his life for them. And when we get in touch with the heart of God and we realize how much God loves this person, it changes the way we'll handle the situation. Hebrews 5 in speaking of a high priest, says this. I, I really love this verse. It says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray because he himself is subject to weakness. Gently. Galatians 6 says a similar thing. It says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. When we get in touch with the heart of God, we realize that we're to be gentle with others, in their sin, and we're to be very self-aware. We're to be aware of our own weakness. In fact, fourth, we're to recognize our own sinfulness. This is important because we need to take the plank or the drill bit out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That's what Jesus said. How are we going to do that if we just go rushing into the situation? Our first response should be prayer. When we pray first, we follow the pattern of Jesus. In Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. But, what? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is what the Lord Jesus did for Simon Peter. He prayed for him. He prayed that in the midst of his trial, his faith wouldn't fail. Peter's courage failed, but his faith never failed. And consider this. Jesus finished his work of redemption. For the last 2,000 years, what has he been doing? He's been carrying on a ministry of intercession. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for you as a believer, praying for me. We see that in Romans 8 and Hebrews 7. So we need to follow not only the command, but also the pattern of Jesus in prayer. When we respond 
in prayer first, we also conform to the will of God. That's what verses 14 and 15 are all about. Asking according to the will of God. And again, our text this morning is an example of that. And when our first response is prayer, we unleash the power of God. Look what verse 16 says. It says that we should pray and God will give him life. Now we're going to get into the possible meanings of that in a moment. But this much is certain. It's a response of God to our prayer. And it's powerful. It gives life. Let me read you James 5.16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And power doesn't come from us. We tap into God's power. And God's power flows through us when we pray. When we pray according to God's will. Charles Spurgeon once said this, he said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Isn't that cool? Prayer is a slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. So how often is our first response when we see a brother sinning or a sister sinning to pray? I'm going to guess that all too often it's not our first response. It might even be our last response. If we can't do anything else, if nothing else seems to work, if the situation starts spiraling out of control, then we'll pray. But prayer is to be our first response. And having considered these seven things, and like I said, there's probably more. Can you imagine going into a situation with the brother or sister who sinned without praying first? I don't want to any longer. I want prayer to be my first response. Imagine if you had a group of people lifting you up in prayer every week. Especially when you're at your weakest, when you're stumbling. And they're not in your face. They're praying for you. They're drawing upon God's power to strengthen you. How powerful would that be? And James says we should confess our sins to each other and pray for one another so that we may be healed. So this is the priority of prayer that we see in this, in this verse. Well now, we need to look at the question of interpretation. This is where the text gets really tricky. It speaks of death and of life. And verse 16 again says, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Well, the difficulty of this passage centers around this big question. Is this passage referring to physical death and physical life? Or spiritual death and spiritual life? Why does it matter? Well, it makes a big difference. I, I wish it was as simple as just looking at the Greek and going, oh yeah, there are two different words. This is spiritual death, or it's physical death, or it's not. It's the same word. <laughs> for death in the New Testament both spiritual death and physical death are the same word it's I'm going to say it right thanatos, thanatos and so we see it used throughout the New Testament interchangeably now physical death, physical death of course is the separation of the body from the soul spiritual death 
ultimately is a separation of the soul from God. Now, so far in this letter, John, you always want to look at the context. John's used death twice. He's used life a bunch of times, but he's used death twice. They're both in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 14, and both refer to spiritual death. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's clearly talking about spiritual death. But here in verse 16 of our text, it says, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Now, if that's referring to spiritual death, then there's a problem. Because it's talking about a brother. Somebody who has already received the gift of eternal life. And this then would be saying that if a believer who has eternal life commits a sin, it can lead to spiritual death. But if you pray for them, they'll receive eternal life again. Like they can be saved and then lose their salvation and then be saved all over again. Well, when you look at all of scripture, that doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. So for this reason, some will say that John must be using the word brother kind of loosely. It doesn't mean brother like one who's saved. It must mean like a brother who kind of is in fellowship with the church and you think he's a brother, but then he goes out like the false teachers and he never really was a brother. But when you look at John's writing, he's very clear. He doesn't use brother that way. It's always referring to a believer. So that makes the interpretation of spiritual death and spiritual life problematic. Another interpretation is that it's referring to physical death. Someone sees a brother commit a crime, a sin that does not lead to physical death, he should pray and God will give him physical life. Well, you, you see the difficulty in that. If the sin doesn't lead to physical death, then why does he need life? He's still alive. He didn't die. Why would God give him life again? That doesn't make sense. A variation on this is that it's speaking of physical death, but the life is talking not about spiritual life in the sense of regeneration and not about physical life in the sense of resurrection, but of life, spiritual life in the sense of like a restored fellowship with God. So he, you know, pray for him and he'll receive life. He'll receive a, a restored fellowship with God. It's possible, but that would be an unusual use of the word life. We don't see it used that way. So which is it? Is it one of these or is it something else? If you're waiting for me to tell you definitively, I, I can't. <laughs> I don't know. It's not clear. There's a lot of uncertainty. I don't think there, there is a perfect answer. We don't know it. We don't know it from the text. But if I had to choose, I would probably lean slightly toward the last one that it's referring to physical death of a brother and that the life would be some sort of restored relationship walking closely with the Lord. But even that, I think, is a little shaky at best. So what do we do when we have a passage like this? There aren't many, but there are some. Scripture interprets Scripture. We can usually come to a point of clarity, even if the passage in isolation is not clear, but this one's an outlier. It's, it's really a difficult passage. But here's what we can do. 
we can take the things that we are sure of in this passage and we can look at those. And so I want to do that a little bit. First of all, all sin leads to death eventually, right? Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. All have sinned, therefore all men die. The wages of sin is death. So every, even one sin will lead to death eventually, physical death. What about the people who are alive on the earth when the Lord comes back and he takes them away? We teach the rapture. Well, their sin also led to death. It led to Christ's death, right? So all sin leads to death eventually. But there are some sins that lead to an immediate physical death as a divine act of judgment. Let me give you some examples. In Leviticus 10, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, his two sons, they took... Uh, they didn't follow God's instruction for how they must approach him. And they came in with strange fire. They just did this whole incense thing their way and went walking into the, the temple before the Lord. And the Lord struck them both dead. In number 16, Korah, he led a rebellion of 250 men against Moses. And judgment came down. The ground opened up. And Korah and his cohorts and their tents and everything. Their possession was swallowed up into the ground. And it closed up again. They were judged immediately. That sin led to death. And you might say, well, these are Old Testament accounts. And that's good. You should notice that. They are. And there's more of them too. The guy that went to steady the Ark of the Covenant. Dead. But there's new accounts New Testament accounts too. We can fast forward to Acts chapter 5. Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold this piece of property and they pretended to give all the money to the church. It wasn't the gift that was the problem. It was their prideful pretending. They wanted to look good and they lied to the Holy Spirit. And so, boom, Ananias is struck dead. His wife comes in. Is this all the money? Yeah, it's all the money. Boom. She's struck dead too right then. A sin that led to immediate physical death is a divine judgment of God. In 1 Corinthians 5, there was sexual immorality in a church. And one man went so far as to sleep with his father's wife. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul says, Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Some translations say, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, that he might be put to death physically, but his soul be saved. This is a believer who experiences physical death immediately as a result of his sin. And then another one. Um, we just celebrated the Seder and we talked about communion. 1 Corinthians 11 in verses 27 through 30, say that some were talking, were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And it says, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, they died because they came to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Immediate death is divine judgment. So there are circumstances under which God could choose to take a believer's life physically and immediately because of sin. Now, it's usually to protect the integrity of the church or to protect the gospel witness. God takes it seriously. Personally, 
I think we could use a little more of this. Imagine that, a little more of it, because it has a purifying effect on the church, just like church discipline does. It has a purifying effect on the church. If that happened, if like Randall Road opened up and a bunch of people got swallowed up, we would have us really taking seriously our relationship with the Lord, wouldn't it? Well, God can still do this if he wants. We do have to be careful that we're not presumptuous and, and assume that any untimely death is like an act of God's judgment. Somebody dies immediately in a car crash. We don't want to be thinking, we must have really sinned bad for God to have taken his life like that. There was sin there. We can't know that. So you have to avoid that kind of thinking. But God could do that. But verse 15, 16, it continues. It says, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. Okay, so there is a sin also that leads to permanent spiritual death. This we know very clearly from scripture. It, actually, any one sin can lead to permanent spiritual death, right? Any single sin that is not covered by the righteousness of Christ, by grace through faith, will lead to spiritual death, the second death, a permanent separation from God, eternal judgment. So any one sin can. But what I'm referring to is one unforgivable and unpardonable sin that leads to spiritual death. And that's, in Scripture, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's called, in some places, the eternal sin. Blasphemy the Holy Spirit is not forgivable, not because it's such a horrible, it's not that it's worse than any other sin out there. The reason blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable is because the person is not asking for forgiveness. He doesn't see the need for it. His own heart has become so hardened and he's so secure in his own righteousness that he's continually rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Remember, the Holy Spirit came to convict the world according to sin and to point people to Jesus Christ. And so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to continually and ultimately reject the work of the Holy Spirit. It's like slamming the door on the Spirit's face. You're slamming the door on the one who's trying to save you. So it can't be forgiven because the person is not seeking forgiveness. Some people might worry, well, have I committed the sin, the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? If you're worried about that, you probably haven't. Because if you committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't be worried about it. You could care less. Now, if you are afraid you maybe have, confess it. It can still be forgiven if you confess it. But if you don't, you're in danger of being in that place where your heart is so hardened that you're unable to come to that place of repentance. You just, I don't need God in my life. Away from me. And you know what? God's a gentleman. He honors our will in that regard. Okay. 
So there are sins that lead to physical death and there is sin that leads to eternal spiritual death. The end of verse 16 again says, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that we should pray about that. Well, if this is a reference to physical death, then there's no point in praying because why? The person's dead. Either he's dead or God has determined that this will be a divine judgment and the person will die. And we're not going to change God's mind on that. And so if we were to pray, God, don't, don't let him die, don't let him die. Well, we're not praying in accordance with the will of God. So what's the point if God has determined it? So if it's physical death, he's already dead or he's going to be dead. If on the other hand, it's referring to spiritual death, then apparently there'd be no point in praying for that either because the person has already become so hardened of heart that he's utterly and permanently unresponsive to the work of the Holy Spirit. And God knows when that point is reached. He knew it before the person was born. He knows. And he knows that nothing is going to change. So I believe this is a reason why it says, don't bother praying about that, regardless of whether it's physical or spiritual death. And then in verse 17, it emphasizes all wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Hallelujah. Because again, sin is to miss the mark. It's to be anywhere outside moral perfection. And so, there is sin that does not lead to death. It, does, it either does not lead to immediate physical death, or it does not lead to eternal spiritual death, whichever it may be referring to. So this is indeed a, a difficult passage. We don't have all of the answers. Now, here's the thing, though. God could have made this crystal clear. He could have. It's not like, oh, I messed up. I should have put this in that word and not that. No, God didn't make it clear, and I don't think it's a mistake. I, maybe the value doesn't come from digesting it, but chewing on it. You ever think about that? Almost like a dog with a rawhide bone. It wouldn't be good if they swallowed the thing, but it's good for them to sit and chew on it. Some things we just need to sit and chew on. And this just may be it. But there are some things that are very clear. Again, one of those is the absolute certainty of sin. Not just out there, but in here, in the church, in our own lives. And as believers, we do no favors by pretending that sin doesn't exist, either in our life or in the lives of those around us. And as a church, we do no favors by failing to teach about the ugliness of sin and the offense that it is to a holy God. And we do no favors by failing to teach that there is an eternal punishment for sin to those who will not repent and come to the Lord. Another thing that's very clear is that our first response to seeing another believer sin should be prayer. Prayer. Now as we wrap this up, there was an article that was just written a couple days ago and it was posted uh, to, in the Gospel Coalition and I was really encouraged by this article. Now I want to read you a couple parts of it because it speaks a lot to what's in our text. It was titled, why I Love the Church That Talks About Sin. What a cool title. That got my attention right away. Why I Love the Church That Talks About 
sin. And it was written by a young lady named Rin Driver. And she said that she had accepted Jesus into her heart at age five. She said she never read her Bible outside of church. She never had a desire to. And she very quickly fell into all types of sexual sin and pornography and ever, never-ending lust. And she was a mess. And she writes, I was immensely broken, an immensely broken child in a church that never discussed sin or the transformative power of the gospel. The pastor seemed to have a perfect life. The congregants dressed and spoke exactly the way you'd expect from perfect Christians. As far as my young mind could tell, I was the only stained one, the only corrupted one. There seemed to be no escape from my sinful bondage, so I disguised my shame and imitated perfection. I acted like a perfect Christian, hoping someday it would become a reality. During the summer before my first year of college, by God's infinite grace, my high school running coach invited me to join his family at their church. This church was like none of the others I visited. Their stated ministry purpose described exactly what I needed. Helping people journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people had a deep-seated love for the word of God and an understanding of the practical implications of the gospel that I'd never seen before. After that first Sunday, this became my church. She goes on to write, through the biblical counseling and discipleship ministry there, I had the opportunity to work through the guilt and shame I'd borne alone for years. I was able to confess my sin after 15 years of hiding my wretched past. Through reading memorizing and dwelling on the word of God in relationship with other believers, I came to a true understanding of the gospel. For the first time, I saw the beauty of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. It was no longer an impersonal or abstract concept that, that the Son of God would live a perfectly innocent life and surrender himself to be slaughtered at the all-sufficient atonement. For my, so that the all-sufficient atonement for my sins and the sins of the world would be carried out. It was no longer an impossible mystery that God raised Christ from the dead and after three days, and that through this resurrection, Christ defeated death itself. Christ suffered and died so I wouldn't have to face the just punishment for my sins against the holy God. She goes on, God has continued to use this church in powerful ways to draw me to himself. There is a place where sin is called what it is and the chosen of God are called what they are, free. Free from the bondage of sin. Free through the spirit of Christ to obey God. Isn't that beautiful? We need to be a church that talks about sin. We need to be real and transparent about our own sin. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters around us when we see sin. And there's more that God calls us to do, but that first step is to pray so that we can restore them gently. This, this is God's will for us. It's his process of sanctification. So we can be absolutely certain of sin and our responsibility to pray. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we are sinners. And you say so clearly that if we say we're not, we're liars. 
and the truth isn't in us. And God, as we really just meditated on during worship this morning, you came down into our darkness, into this dark, sinful, lost world. You came down in your holy perfection. You let go of heaven and you came and you gave yourself for our sin, God. We're going to see that tonight as we look at the passion of the Christ. We're going to remember it on Friday. And then on Sunday, God, we're going we're gonna to celebrate your resurrection, the hope of new life. And God, you offer that to us. Lord, we, we need your help. Even as new creations in Christ, we're still in this, this body of flesh, God. And it gets the best of us at times. Our old sin nature wins out over our new nature. God, help us to push back on that. Give us the strength by your spirit to say no to sin, to starve the flesh and to feed the soul. God, this is what we need. This is what you want for us. And so God, through your word, do your work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord. Will you stand with us? Thank <clears throat> you.